I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. I'm Julie Gould. In this episode, we're getting some insight into one particular art-science collaboration, where the science was influenced by ancient artistic methods and the art was driven by futuristic technologies and ideas. In keeping with our art and science theme, each episode in this podcast series concludes with a follow-up sponsored slot from the International Science Council. The ISC's Centre for Science Futures is exploring the creative process and societal impact of science fiction by talking to some of the genre's leading authors. My name is Laura Splann and I'm an interdisciplinary artist based in Brooklyn, New York. And my work explores intersections of science, technology and culture. In 2022, Laura put out a call for an online international exhibition called Gooey Gooey that ran from March the 1st until June the 11th, 2023. What I was interested in with Gooey Gooey was looking at digital and technological representations of the biological world, and particularly in the intersections of the computational and the organic. I work in a lot of different materials and media that is really inspired by conceptual underpinnings. So I wanted to use this idea of gooey gooey um, to explore connections between the gooey materiality of biology and graphical user interface in technology. So it was, you know, kind of a playful connection in terms of the title. So I'm really interested in how these kind of virtual representations of organic or biological worlds influences our understanding of them. And so this first exhibition, um, people are exploring everything from interfaces to interactivity, to aesthetics of delay, progress bars, glitches, um, and artificial intelligence and connecting that to the gooey elements of the biological world, which is a lot of maybe visceral or, um, you know, kind of drippy animation, 
What are you hoping that the audience gets out out of looking at the art that you've got in this curation, this collection of, of work that you've put together? The work in the exhibition just presents a lot of really exciting ways to kind of reconsider how technology affects our understanding of nature and our constructions of nature. Um, so if we think about, you know, what we call biology or science, we often think of them as these fixed entities. And if we think about the way that they're represented, we think of those representations as fixed and factual. And in fact, the tools and technologies that we use to represent the biological world and to construct nature are actually very subjective. And there, that opens up a lot of really interesting possibilities for artists to, to kind of play with that as material in and of itself, um, to play with that subjectivity as material, um, or even to kind of imagine um, new possibilities through, through technology for what nature is or what nature could be in terms of our construction cultural understanding of it. Diana Scarborough, a self-described artist engineer, is one of the artists whose work is featured in the Gooey Gooey exhibition. Diana spent more than a decade training and working as an electrical engineer before switching to art, and Diana loves to use her engineering background to fuel her artwork, the purpose of which is to share the magic of science with people who don't always see it. I'm fascinated with their um, their research, the wonder, the beauty of either the, the nanoscale, the cosmos. And my idea is to sort of understand that from their perspective, but also see the wonder and magic in what they do, but reinterpret it through my eyes as an artist. So what I do is um, understand it, um, ask questions, delve deeper into that. And then from that, I go away and I process it in a kind of art science way and it becomes an emotional story um, it becomes a film it becomes an installation it becomes a, a painting um, really it's not for me about the media but it is to find the best way to really communicate um, the science and what I want to say about the science as we've heard in a previous episode, Diana is the first artist-in-residence in Liliana Fruch's laboratory. Diana and Liliana met a few years ago at a networking event that the University of Cambridge in the UK was holding, where the aim was for the creatives from different fields to connect and maybe start something exciting together. So I went to one of these events, we started talking, and Diana, because she has engineering background and artistic background, was very much interested in bridging this art-science divide, which is not that divided any longer. And so we started thinking about uh, projects, we interacted over the years, and then we were looking into formalizing a little bit more Diana's status. That means giving her access to our labs, uh, making her come to the meetings, and having access to all of the facilities that you would need. Um, and then we were looking at the opportunities of funding this and we managed to work it out. 
So now it's uh, it has been a long process. It takes a while for people to get to know each other, to see that they can interact and work creatively together. Anna Melikova, a postdoc in Liliana's group, is working on artificial enzymes. She's trying to produce catalysts that are more robust and can be used under different pressures and temperatures. To do this, she's combining natural catalytic systems with inorganic materials to stabilise them. At the same time, she wants to use materials which are cheap and affordable, which is how they came to clay. Here's Liliana again. If you think about origins of life, the first thing you had on Earth were some molecules and you had some minerals, some clays as well. So it was kind of natural to look a little bit into geology and mineralogy for materials that would be abundant and could be combined with biomolecules to do some catalysis. At the beginning, this project, it was inspired by art as well. This is Anna Melikova. Because uh, we tried to stabilize the flavins. Flavins, it's uh, enzyme cofactors with natural support, with natural materials, with clays. It was Liliana's idea. So we tried to find the ways how, how it was done before. And we found actually one paper that uh, fixed like some dyes on the clay just to stabilize them, to make them their life longer. They didn't give details. So how they did, they just gave the name. So lake pigment method. And we tried to find out what was this lake pigment method. And we found that actually it's very ancient method. And artists for like centuries used this uh, to fix the dyes on clays to make pigments to use in the real art. So we basically went back into the art and the way how the pigments were stabilized with clays. Um, we were reading about Mayan uh, um, art as well, because Maya used to produce very uh, light, fast blue colors. And they did it by mixing plant, plant pigments with clays. And we know now that these clays were composed of nanostructures as well. So without knowing anything about nanotechnology, they developed the process that stabilize the colors. And we wanted to stabilize the biomolecules as well. And we decided to try. Like <laughs> We didn't have uh, some other alternatives, a lot of other alternatives, and we tried uh, this way. So it, it's, it actually worked. Yeah, so there was there was artistic artistic beginning in this story. So this was the first inspiration from art. And then it felt very natural that this project would be inspiration also for Diana, who is artist. So she wanted to take the material which was made using old methods and show what would what is happening right now with artificial intelligence with nanotechnology so just before christmas 2022 diana scarbra sat down with postdoc anna melikova to watch and record how she was making the goo So she made this goo, which was luminescent in daylight. Although it's made entirely of organic, non-living material, but when you put it in the dish, it moves around and it looks very organic. I think we did this experiment like in two turns. Like the first time, Diana just looked how I'm doing this. And uh, next, she just got some ideas of what we can do, what she can film. 
and uh, so in the end like we did it together so I helped her to film all the process and so she mixed it and I filmed it and it was a jelly and it was luminous and I found it beautiful it's like cooking a new material and I thought well, this is the starting point so over Christmas I had to have a look at how can I make this intersection of this new material that's not out in the world yet into something to meet the brief of gooey gooey and I guess that's where my artist craziness comes in. I don't really know how my wine works but I guess when you talked about this intersection of art and science it all goes in my mind all sort of wrestles around and then it comes out as some kind of integration. So I, after a lot of experiments over Christmas with the footage I had, with some, I don't know what you call it, um, the stress reliever goo. I don't know if you ever had that when you were there, luminous goo. I, I, I had some visuals, but I hadn't got the story. And I also am interested in text and pattern. I, Alice in Wonderland is my favorite uh, film. And, and I was interested also in uh, AI, ChatGPT. So all these new, looking at, at, at developing a work that's about the past and the present and the future, I combine these three ideas into a rather crazy film using um, soundtracks from space. So I hadn't seen them for a month. I'd taken this footage and then transformed it into this very surreal, quite dark art film. It was on a big screen in a, a lecture theatre and I decided not to tell them anything before that. So they weren't preempted. And I was just watching the body language. So there was probably 15 people and the professor that was in the room at the end of a very heavy kind of research-centred seminar. This was there. And then it was like, what do you think? And I wasn't sure what they would think. So uh, that was a special moment. I felt a little bit, uh, I, I was fascinated by all of the movement and capturing the movement of this non-living material, but it looked really as though it, it is a living organism. I could very easily imagine alien species looking like this. And then the whole fact that she incorporated a little bit of uh, chat GPT discussion into uh, the video was also a little bit scary because it was almost a dialogue running while this non-living matter was moving on the screen. It was a little bit scary at some point. Drew Baker is another postdoctoral researcher in Liliana's lab and he was there when the group was shown the video for the first time. It has this kind of mind of its own, um, and that like, uh, and seeing I guess your symbols kind of more or Anna's symbols morphed into this like, living and breathing, and, like, real but not real. It was kind of this like, uh, was that called the uh, uncanny valley? Like it seemed like you'd want to talk to it, but then you're also afraid that it knows too much. I don't know. It was a yeah, it was cool. Will Etheridge, a PhD student in the lab, was there as well. For me, it was quite fascinating uh, to give you some context. Um, I hadn't heard anything about the project until I saw the video for the first time. Obviously, I, I knew the material and I, I knew that Anna was working on it. 
Um, but for me, I got this real sense of like uh, an embryonic nature from the goo. And the conversation, the AI conversation with ChatGPT, the way I interpreted it was this material coming to life. It was like the first time anybody had seen this material. And it was the material kind of getting a sense of its own properties, right? Which is what we do in the lab. We kind of like try to study it and try to figure out exactly how it behaves, what color it is, if you illuminate it under different light, its strength, whatever, uh, temperature resistance, all of these kind of things. And I guess for me, it was this representation that every day these people, like Anna, for instance, go into the lab and they create a brand new material that nobody's actually seen before and it just passes us by. Whereas just by having this kind of uh, video and this um, different way of presenting it, as you say, it gave me a, a, a moment to stop and pause that we create these things and we don't take a, a moment to kind of appreciate that nobody's kind of seen this before. It's completely new. It's got completely new properties. So it was like, that was what it was for me. It just represented this kind of embryonic uh, substance that was just coming into being and questioning its own existence. And it's very interesting that you say embryonic because, you know, there is a religious point of view that all like humans they were created from the clay and here we're using clay you know yeah. and like a new you know new life <laughs> again it uh, like arised from the clay with diana's vision yeah it's very cool and i thought yes you get it you know absolutely but i was amazed that we could turn something which was meant to be a sustainable material for photocatalysis you know how boring sounds that title of a paper into kind of uh, artificial intelligence living matter uh, fascinated visualization you actually see uh, a kind of very science fictiony vision of uh, what is the science right now but actually if you look into the chemistry of material it is done with a methodology that is existing for centuries already so it's it's the project is merging old and new you can watch diana's video on the gooey gooey exhibition website at www.plexusprojects.org forward slash gui dash g-o-o-e-y In the next episode of this series, we're looking at the relationship between data and art. But before that, we've got the sponsored slot with the International Science Council about the creative process and societal impact of science fiction. Thanks to Diana Scarborough for letting us use the soundtrack of her gooey, gooey video for this episode. And to the Sounds of Space team, which is Nigel Meredith, Kim Cunio and Diana, for letting us use the final track of their Aurora musical album, the ending of the symphony of the harmony of the celestial revelations, 10.10am. Hi, I'm Paul Srivastava, and in this podcast series... I'm talking to science fiction authors about the future. I think their unique way of looking at things can give us valuable insights into how we can create the kind of world we want and avoid the kind we don't. 
We are all hoping that science is gonna come and save us from the disaster and the havoc that we wreaked. And that's not the way it's gonna work. Today, I'm speaking to Fernanda Trias, a Uruguayan novelist and short story writer. She's also a lecturer in creative writing at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. Her book, Pink Slime, was recognized as one of the best literary works by a female author in the Spanish-speaking world. We discussed her inspiration, whether dystopian horror can bring about change, and the importance of bringing the arts and sciences together. I hope you enjoy. So welcome, Fernanda. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast series. I'd like to begin by asking you if you can talk a little bit about your own background and your relationship with science. Well, actually, I come from a family where science and art have always been intertwined. My father was a doctor. I grew up, for example, playing in the corridors of hospitals and my father would talk about the human body, and for me it was very interesting. But at the same time, I had more like a humanistic inclination, so I ended up studying human studies. I worked for many years as a translator, but I specialized in medical texts. In translation, I found a way of uh, having both, right? On the one side, languages that I love, and on the other hand, I could do research, learn. Wonderful. Your new exciting book that is getting translated, Pink Slime, into English. Can you tell us a little bit about the general theme of the book and how you talk about science and the organization of science in this work? Actually, Pink Slime is one of those things that I discovered when I was still doing medical translations. In this dystopian novel, there has been an environmental catastrophe and I thought, well, let's imagine a country where the thing they have to feed the population is this paste that is called pink slime, pejoratively. All the trimmings and all the little bits and pieces of the carcasses, the livestock, are heated at really, really high temperatures. Then they are centrifuged to remove the fat from the meat, and there results a paste that is very pink, that looks like a toothpaste. The two main characters, the narrator is a woman, and she takes care of a, a child who has a rare disease. One of the many symptoms that it has is the person is always hungry. The brain doesn't receive the signal that says, okay, that's enough. So it's a, it's a very painful syndrome. And this, this woman is taking care of a child who cannot stop eating in a world where there is a, a shortage of food and uh, this pink slime is the main food available. That is so powerful. And one hope is that this kind of trope of horror and dystopia shocks people and, and gets them to change behaviors towards being more sustainable, either in nutrition of their own body or uh, in burning carbon or what have you. Do you think science fiction can really bring about a change in mindset? I don't know, but um, every dystopian novel contains at least some echo of reality. I have the feeling that as a society, we are in denial right now of, of what's going on with climate change. And it's normal because it's so scary. And also because 
um, individuals, we don't feel we can do much to change what's going on. We feel this frustration, but that's why I think it's so important for art to bring the subject and to make it available for people because it creates a, a tangible example of what could happen. And suddenly we can imagine this the whole world with all these consequences and the details and how this would affect normal everyday people. And that's how we can start talking about this. Very interesting. Do you reckon that uh, certain scientific and technological developments are actually damaging to Earth systems? And what could be the role of science fiction in preventing that? What I sometimes have the feeling is that uh, science is like a good mother that is running behind the spoiled child that is wreaking havoc in the house and the mother is running behind just picking up the toys, <laughs> right? <laughs> so science right now is this safety net that we are all hoping that science is going to come and find a way to save us from the disaster and the havoc that we wreaked. And, and that's not the way it's going to work. If we take the case of food, for example... There are est estimates that the planet will need to produce 60% more food by 2050 to sustain the world's growing population. That's going to be really difficult. There are scientific innovations already going in that direction, thinking, well, how can we uh, genetically modify crops or seeds to make them heat resistant? But then if you think about it, around 30% of the food produced in the world right now is lost or wasted. And it's hand in hand with capitalism, of course. So what we need is a change. Science fiction helps us, even if it doesn't come up with a solution, of course. But at least uh, it helps exploring the problem and it helps posing the question. The point you're making about arts or narrative shaping the question, this goes to the heart of what some people are calling transdisciplinary scientific research, where research is done in co-creation with stakeholders. And that's why it's so important to integrate, you know, the humanities and science, because the problems that we are facing right now spill across borders and fields of knowledge. So we take climate change, it's not just an environmental issue. A any decision has an enormous economic and social impact. We need to think about the needs of each community in its context before implementing whatever we want to implement, you have to think how it's going to work in community with those particular challenges. So this is a very important point, the issue of localizing, not just being stuck with general solutions, but customizing them to the local cultural context. That is really the key to solution. And that, to me, is, again, somewhat outside the realm of traditional normal science. What suggestions might you have for scientists to engage in this kind of outputs? This idea that uh, scientific research and art are separate is, ve is very widespread. However, I think they have more things in common than we think, because we they both require curiosity and then the willingness to connect two ideas that look uh, far apart. Connecting the dots to make a bigger pattern. And this is to me an artistic move. It is not a scientific move. 
Exactly. But I think but probably the best scientists are the ones that have this kind of uh, thinking, you know, this creative mind. Creativity is something that is not just for some people that are artists. We are all creative people. When I started writing, uh, thinking about the novel that, that would later be Pink Slime, I had some uh, elements that looked completely uh, unrelated. For example, the Pink Slime is paste, the child with this particular syndrome. This is like a, you know, like a patchwork. But for me as a writer, I need to trust this intuition. I knew they belonged together. I didn't know how. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the International Science Council's Center for Science Futures, done in partnership with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego. Visit future.council.science for the extended versions of these conversations, which will be released in January 2024. They delve deeper into science its organization, and where it could take us in the future. Look out for the next episode, where I'll be talking with Chinese science fiction author Xufan Chen about artificial intelligence, its potential and concerns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.